Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks on this rainy Thursday morning. Uh, needed this rain, and we're thankful for it. And we're going to talk about co-ops today as it relates to Ward 7 and Ward 8. Miss Janet Hazel is going to be on the phone as soon as she gets. Janet, are you on? Yes, how are you? Hey, there you are. Thank you. I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Fantastic. Glad you're taking our time of your busy schedule to, to talk with us this morning. Oh, yes, no problem. So I want to get right into it to talk about uh, Mr. Vincent Gray's Ward 7 action plan. Okay. <laughs> so I understand that uh, you are his communications director? Or yes. Yeah, okay. So you, you're in charge of getting out the word, so that's what we want to do today. Yes. So I understand he wants to the city to build a hospital and a couple of grocery stores and some retail in Ward 7 and 8. Yes, well, uh, let me go back to the Ward 7 action plan, which was a product of a summit, the Ward 7 Action Summit that Councilmember Gray, before he was sworn into office back in December, he uh, coordinated and conducted a summit where there was over 400 people in attendance from Ward 7 uh, residents uh, and other stakeholders, business owners in the ward, individuals who work in the ward, uh, who may or may not live in the ward, but um, stakeholders, uh, principally residents, that came together. It was a facilitator process similar to when he was mayor of the district in which he had a um, one city action summit and he also held uh, back in 2013 a ward 7 economic development summit so this summit brought together individuals to deal with issues of importance to the community ward 7 in particular and it laid the groundwork for what his legislative agenda is now from that framework, uh, he said that he is laser-focused on improving the quality of life for Ward 7 and residents of the East End of the District of Columbia, which you'll notice he says East End now throughout his communications because he's rebranding uh, our side of the Anacostia River, Ward 7 and 8, that have for many years been known as the east of the river, um, east of the Anacostia, which on some levels has a negative moniker, unlike the west end of the city. So um, when you hear me say east end, that's what he's discussing. And from that summit that was facilitated with tabulation machines on each table, uh, questionnaires were given out, and the, and the residents went through topic by topic, and they came up with four major goals of that plan, which are goal number one, to improve the educational outcomes 
of Ward 7 residents. Number two, to restore public safety to Ward 7 neighborhoods. Goal three, to bring economic development amenities and employment opportunities to Ward 7 residents. And number four, to improve the quality of life for all Ward 7 residents, and by extension, the East End, which goes to Ward 8 because we find many similarities within the communities that have on many levels been disenfranchised and don't have a lot of the amenities that we see on the west end of the city. So that's what formed the Ward 7 Action Plan, which we were able to publish in March of this year. The summit was in December. These were all funds, nearly $100,000 that he raised on his own because he was not in government at that time to be able to utilize budget uh, of the city. So he raised these funds from private donors uh, in order to put on the summit and then to publish the Ward 7 Action Plan, which is the framework for all the legislation, 23 pieces of legislation that he has introduced since January 2nd when he was sworn in. So under those four goals, you'll see... Well, um, can I... Um I had I had the plan in front of me, the Ward Seven Action okay. Plan, and Good. with with Mr. Gray's picture on front, and I see the the four goals right in the table of contents. And mm-hmm. it's a wonderful piece. And one of the things I was excited about it is he got people together. I think he said that he expected 150 people, and he got 400. So he put yeah. the call out, and people came. And that's a that's a cooperative. Um, value is is getting everybody. And that first the first principle of cooperative is is everybody's included. It doesn't make any difference about their uh, political affiliations or their race or age or sex or economics. That everybody come to the table and tell us what you want. So that that's the first thing is that I was excited when I heard what he did. I wish I had known so I could have been in that room also and participating. So maybe the next time he does this, I'll, I'll know about it. So I'm, I'm liking what he put together because it's people-focused, people-driven. It's what the residents say that they want. Yes. All right. So now you can keep going with these four. Out of these four goals, he had 23 pieces of legislation. 23 pieces of legislation that have been introduced so far, and we have more that we intend to introduce before the end of this legislative session, uh, which will we're going into recess July 15th through I believe September 14th or 15th, uh, and then the session will um, recess again in December, come back. The session will end in December of next year. So the cycle, for those who are not as intimately familiar with the legislative cycle, you want to introduce your legislation, go through markups, which is literally when uh, council members mark up legislation and um, go through picking over what they want in it and what they don't from hearing from constituents, from residents and stakeholders in the district. So we just finished the budget cycle, which the budget was introduced by the mayor April 4th, I believe, and between April 6th and last week there were hearings where the public came in and talked about what they want, what they don't want, what they didn't see in the budget, what they need in the budget, and 
what uh, Councilmember Gray's legislation spoke to, uh, particularly these pieces of legislation that are to help bring amenities to the east end of the city, such as the East End Grocery and Retail Incentive Program Tax Abatement Act of 2017. I know that's a, a mouthful, but effectively that is incentivizing uh, businesses to locate uh, on the east end of the city while the city provides them with tax incentives and abatements. There's also east end surplus allocation Equitable Investment Act, another mouthful, but those are incentives to bring investment, retailers, grocery, as well as dining experiences to the east end of the city. Um, he also introduced, I think, the big cornerstone piece of legislation um, is the East End Healthcare Desert, Retail Desert, and Food Desert Elimination Act of 2017. In that, it enables the District of Columbia to effectively build out a facility uh, to construct a location and then have a retailer, be it a healthcare provider, retail provider, or grocery store provider to come in and operate their business in that building. Because a lot of what we're hearing is, oh, the costs are so expensive to come in and build out in our community, which we know that to be a bit of a fallacy because uh, people on the East End buy groceries, buy goods and services, consume health care just like anyone else. However, that is a stigma that we are trying to overcome. So the council member introduced this one big piece of legislation to enable the city to actually build out on parcels that the city owns. So that takes away that one issue of a retailer or a hospital provider or a grocer to come in. They just have to operate. He has definitely been an ardent advocate for getting a healthcare system and hospital on the East End because United Medical Center, the facility itself is failing. Uh, it's over 50 years old, and that's a part of that piece of legislation. So I think the piece that you were most interested in is the East End Healthcare Desert, Retail Desert, and Food Desert Elimination Act, which you came out to testify on behalf of uh, back May 19th, where we had uh, well over 80 people sign up to come and testify, and that day went on until, oh my goodness, I think around 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. That was exciting for me. I, uh, you know, it started at 11 and it was sort of built that it would be over at one, two hours, and then you're going to start another one hearing. And there was so many people that showed up, which is another sort of indication of how interested people are on this board seven and eight. So I sat there till four when I testified. And what was interesting was listening to everybody else and really talking about a health system. Uh, the whole system of increasing one's health, not just a hospital, but having the quality foods, the organic uh, good foods and exercise and education and everything that's needed in clinics and hospitals so that people can have good health. And because there's some stats, and I don't know them all, you may know better than I, the number of children that die in the district, the the birth rate was so was one of the highest in the nation. I used to know the stat, but we we have some bad health in in the district. Well, we do indeed, and in fact, 
one of the reasons that he introduced, well, as, as you may and your listeners may recall, when the council member was mayor, he uh, put in the budget funds to build out the East End Medical Center, which would be fully integrated with an ambulatory health care facility and an urgent care health care facility because on the East End, we do not have, as odd as it may seem, an actual urgent care provider uh, once you pretty much leave North Capitol. And there might there might be one uh, in the Eastern Market area, someone told me. However... Janice, can you uh, hold there for a minute? We'll come back and talk more about the health care and, and what he is intending to do. We have to take our first break. This is okay. very exciting. I really thank you for coming on and sharing this information with me and our, our guests and everything that Mr. Gray is doing for Ward 7 and Ward 8. But we'll be yes. right back. Please do not touch that down. Information is power, and that's the reason the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives, information about the community, so that you can take this information and put it into action. That's where you get the power. If you don't do something with the information, there is no power in it. It's like having gas in a car, but until you ignite it, there's nothing. There's no power. There's no go. So we're hoping you take the information that we provide on this show and either start your own co-op uh, get with a group of people to start one or look out, look for co-ops to do business with. And today we have Miss Janet Hazel, who's talking about the kinds of things that Vincent Gray and his office is doing to give people power. Uh, in particular, we were just talking about uh, health care. And Janet, you were telling us about uh, health care. Could you continue that conversation? Well, yes, something that Councilmember Gray uh, speaks to quite frequently is the health conditions that exist, the large disparity between the East End and the Western wards. And we could rattle off a bunch of statistics to prove the point, but I think one speaks louder than the rest. If you live in Ward 2, your life expectancy is about 86 years. If you live in Ward 8, that number is reduced by 16 years and plummets to age 70. So in terms of an integrated health care system that the council member is seeking to um, have built uh, in a new health care facility, a hospital, the East End Hospital, it, it really proves and goes to the core of us not having a system in which geography determines your lifespan. It's unjust, and we need to do better. I want to make sure everybody got that, and I want to mm-hmm. make sure I got it. You said if you're in Ward 2, which is West, it's 86 years, your life expectancy. But yes. In Ward 7, it's 70 years? Well, Ward 8, and that's based ward on a, a report that he's pulled uh, information from. If you live in Ward 8, that number is reduced by 16 years and plummets to age 70. We can say that that's pretty much mirrored in Ward 7. What, what, did, did you do it for men? Because I um, heard some staggering numbers for Cleveland. If you <laughs> live in the suburbs of Cleveland, it, Cleveland was like 86 years, a male, a white male. And if you were a black man living in the inner city of Cleveland, it dropped way down. It was in the 60s. Uh, it, the, the drop was 
was a huge 20, 30 year drop. So I was at the moment, to... I'm not able to, to uh, put my fingers on what report this came from. So mm-hmm. I don't know if the indicators were principally uh, male subjects or female or both. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the statistics that um, we have uh, utilized uh, ind- has an indicator of the lifespan of one side of our city. So it may have come from the uh, D.C. Department of Health or it may have come from the Census Bureau. Uh, however, um, right now I, I can't tell you exactly what report it was pulled from. So you get both how long one lives, and Janice, I'm turning 70 here in October, so I'm really concerned about life expectancy. But not only life expectancy, but quality of life. It is is how well do you live? Are you are you going into the, the dialysis machines that are heavy in black neighborhoods throughout the U.S. So you yeah. have to go into dialysis machine on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday or something. And, and my brother lived this, so he told me about this life being a diabetic, and I am also. And is uh, and he died at 64 years old uh, in yeah. Detroit. But his mm-hmm. life for 10, 12 years was, for me, was awful because Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, he's having his blood transfused, and then he's trying to get, you know, get some energy on Tuesday, Wednesday, and was that Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And the only day he was sort of like having any energy or any life was on Sunday. And then he starts that whole system all over again. Well, that's um, one of the primary objectives of Councilmember Gray as the chairman of the Committee on Health. He serves as chairperson of the Committee on Health. And being a native Washingtonian, uh, he is focused on ensuring that the East End has an integrated health care system that is the envy of other cities. It's interesting you would cite your brother having uh, had an illness and succumbed in Detroit. As you may know, I'm uh, from Detroit originally, and I can say that my father uh, had similar uh, incidents. He passed away um, a month short of his 66th birthday. And he, too, had renal failure, diabetes, adult-onset diabetes. He had hypertension uh, that was developed over lifestyle um, as well as diet. And in Detroit, we see health deserts. We see definitely see food deserts. And, you know, I am not an expert in terms of co-ops. Never owned a co-op in terms of uh, housing or condo. I've always had a house, but I, I understand the concept of co-ops. I've um, only shopped in a co-op once, and that was with a friend over in the Tacoma Park area. Mm-hmm. But I, I, under- I understand the concept, and we see these types of health disparities throughout the United States in traditionally African American communities. I, I certainly am aware of it coming out of Detroit and having lived in Washington for many decades. And those are things that the council member is focused on. Um, There's really no acceptable reason why in what is widely regarded as the healthcare capital of the world here in D.C., where we're seeing health outcomes of a third-world country. You mentioned infant morbidity rate. We had a high incidence of infant mortality, which is a child dying in their first year of life. And largely, um, that number has reduced greatly. However, when we were seeing that, it's because many uh, African-American mothers don't receive the prenatal health care that they should during uh, their, their pregnancy. And so the health outcome when the child is born is uh, significantly reduced, and without the without the um, accessibility of healthcare, a number of parents don't get in when they should. 
So it is apparent that we need a new state-of-the-art hospital to serve our East End residents who are impacted by the health desert and the food desert. They go they go hand in hand. To be mm-hmm. healthy, you need to have access to healthy, nutritious food options. Um, as you know, I serve as an advisory neighborhood commissioner in Ward 7 as well. well you're my, you're be, my ANC commissioner. Yes, I yes, am. I, yeah. I am you do a great job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And one of the fights that I have had for... Um, for the retailers and restaurateurs coming into our area of the East End is uh, I took a stand. I, I would not support and I would I would fight licensing and permitting of any business that had a deep fryer as its major food preparation um, equipment. And that was to stop the tide of fast food coming into our area. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Denny's is right in my single-member district. Denny's provides a wide range of menu options, but there's only three restaurants in Ward 7, um, two Thai restaurants um, where you can sit down, and Denny's, and we need more. And so uh, the Shrimp Boat, which is uh, just two blocks from my house, will be opening soon. And the concept went from a checkers fast food, which I vehemently opposed with the new buyers uh, last year who purchased it, I said, you know, if it's a checkers, I'll be boycotting it myself every day. And we came to a consensus that he would provide a more nutritious food offering if it was to be a food retailer. And it will open as um, more of a union market or eastern market type of food court with a coffee shop, with Wi-Fi. Uh, It will have a frozen yogurt and ice cream vendor. It will have a uh, donut, fresh-made donuts, where you can put your own toppings on and see the donuts being made. And he's um, trying to settle with the final vendor. He started out with something like a Panda Express or Teriyaki Madness, and I think that has morphed into more of a nutritious um, southern-style soul food, if you will similar to a um, Carolina kitchen type of example. It won't be as large. Uh, however, that's what he's trying to do. And that's what our, our community has to advocate for. When a business is coming in, you need to let the, 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 the proprietor know what we want and what we don't want, what is acceptable and what is not. And for the health disparities, the obesity, the high rate of uh, hypertension, Uh, The diabetes, the childhood diabetes, the adult diabetes, we don't need food options that are not nutritious. And then grocery options, we have a a real challenge with groceries on the East End. So, I mean, that's somewhere that perhaps your co-ops could prevail in addition to brick-and-mortar retailers that we see on other sides of the city. Let me just uh, give you a quick... uh you and the audience, a quick definition of co-ops. It's, it's any business that is uh, owned and controlled. What well, The different types of co-ops depends on who owns and controls it. If it's uh, owned and controlled by the employees, then it's called a worker cooperative. And so any business that you can think of could be a worker cooperative. Uh, if it's owned and controlled by the consumers, then it's called a consumer cooperative, and that's like uh, credit unions, the Credit unions are owned by the people who deposit their money in there. Uh, housing co-ops are owned by the people that live in the in the buildings in the cooperative. Um, so that's the different types. And there's a there is a clinic, uh, Janice, in Madison with 
Wisconsin a health clinic that's owned and controlled by the people that go there. It's a consumer co-op, so it's a patient-centric uh, clinic. And so all the policies and procedures are based on what the patients want out of that out of that business. So those are the two major types. And then there's another one. There are a lot of farmers, and USDA knows a lot about co-ops because farmers have been using co-ops since the 20s and 30s and maybe before that, but got very, very big in the 20s and 30s. So if they come together to buy what they need, then it's a purchasing co-op. They can buy the feed or gasoline or whatever, and artists are doing this now and equipment, and they also form marketing co-ops to market the products and they get experts in both of those two. They either buy what they need or to market their goods to, to many. And Cabot Creamery is an example. So there's a number of, of different ones. So we're going to take our second break, Janice. We'll be right back to talk more okay. about what Mr. Vincent Gray and you guys are doing and the cooperative world. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, the program is Everything Cooperative. It's sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So, Janice, you'll find National Co-op Bank in Detroit and here in D.C. and everywhere, in particular in rural America, in low-income income communities, which is always interesting to me how well they do this job. They were created in the early 80s by Congress uh, to support uh, cooperatives, and they do a very, very good job. Because most bankers, as you know, is they're only interested in loaning to people that already have assets, and a lot of times that's not in our communities. Um, mm-hmm. So we as African Americans more often than not, and anybody else that is economically challenged, uh, end up don't get banking uh, services. So NCB was there, and they work a lot with credit unions, and credit unions will create a product for people that don't necessarily have a lot of assets. What co-ops do, Janice, is they come into an area that's like a food desert where there's a community need and where people come together, and there is a group in the district, and they're meeting tomorrow that's wanting to create a food co-op and maybe several other ones uh, to solve the community need. And then the co-op, the f- food co-op is owned by the consumers, by the people that come in. And I'm wanting to work with them, but I'm hopefully I will get somebody to, to tell me where they're meeting today so I can put that on the air so if people want to come in and meet with them. So how does this um, legislation look? Did we get the money in the budget for the the things that uh, – Mr. Gray wants to put in for Ward 7 and 8 that's needed? Well, it is estimated that the build-out of an Easton hospital would be roughly $336 million. So throughout the budget cycle, we were able to get $300 million into the budget, and that those funds were pulled from other committees. Council member Mary Che uh, was so gracious as to provide $100 million, scrubbing that from various um, non-obligated 
uh, positions within the committees that she is the chair of, which is uh, Energy and, Envi and Environment and Transportation. Uh, also, um, other members of the council uh, added funds from their committees, um, monies that were unobligated, and they could move around a largely vacant positions that had not been filled. And push that over because these other wards, you know, Mary Che uh, over in Ward 3 recognizes that there are a number of hospitals accessible to residents that happen to live within her uh, council boundaries. And it's really not fair. That was her view that members of the community that live on the, west, on the east end don't have the same options as those in the West End. So there was a great collaborative effort between members of the council to help fund the build-out of the hospital, which um, formerly when Councilmember Gray was mayor, he had fully funded it in his budget, but those funds were unfortunately removed during the time in which he was not uh, on the uh, mayor or council. So we got up to $300 million, so effectively there's about $36 million that we're short that we um, do believe will be able to get restored um, through the budget cycle next year. So right now, $300 million will get us um, through design phase, through um, quite a bit to get to the point of building the integrated hospital system, which the council member selected the St. Elizabeth site for its location, uh, accessibility to Metro Rail, Metro Bus, and in that the current United Medical Center is operating in that site. Um, you know, you, you can't tear down while you're still trying to operate mm -hmm. a facility. So this other site on that very large and, and lush campus will provide the, um, the acreage for the East End uh, Medical Center. So we believe we're on track um, at the conclusion of this budget cycle to move forward with getting an East End facility. That would be fantastic. My mother's originally from D.C., and in her later life, she came back here with me and my sister, and she was at that center my sister was living in Ward 8, and that's where my mother was standing for. And so that hospital, it, it just, it looked old. <laughs> it smelled old. <laughs> okay. Over, so. over 50 years old, okay. yeah. Um, um, and it's, it's antiquated in terms of, you know, I don't know the exact lifespan of a building. However, what the district is doing in, in keeping it operational is putting a lot of money into its stopgap as opposed to having a facility that is fully operational, which is a newer facility. That one was built, I believe it had around 400 hospital beds, which there are no hospital facilities that provide that type of in-hospital care anymore. Just because technology has allowed for that, a lot of procedures have reduced recovery time. And people are able to go home. So this would be more of a 200-bed facility and an urgent care facility. So that's what he's pushing for to get there, along with also addressing the physician shortage that we have on the East End. Uh, back in April, the council member introduced two pieces of legislation to help address the physician shortage. One is the Health Care Revolving Fund Act of 2017, and the second one is the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact Approval Act. Now, I know that's a mouthful, again, for those of us who speak legislative ease, but just think in terms of 
the um, the types of physicians that we don't have, specialists that we don't have on the east end of the city. So a lot of our residents, you mentioned a lot of our residents are taking dialysis. Many of those facilities are not in Ward 7 and 8. They've got to travel um, on top of the, the amount of time that they have to be hooked up to the machines and, and sit there. Those who don't have a vehicle, they've got to wait for perhaps metro access or someone to pick them up. You know, there's a lot that goes into not having access to uh, medical facilities and physicians closer to where you live. And uh, while you know, me coming from Detroit, which is 140 square miles in D.C., is much, much smaller. I think we are, I don't know, maybe 36 square miles. It's a very different dynamic. But in Detroit, you have everything's connected by highways and, and vehicles. D.C., uh, it's just it's a, it's a different layout. And we need to make sure that our physicians, our specialists, and our hospital care facilities are closer to the people who really need it more. We have so many disparities on the east end of town, and we don't have the physicians to um, accommodate them. You know, it was interesting sitting in that uh, hearing and listening to how people have to travel for health care and for food. Um, and food, yeah. That, that was amazing to me that somebody said, one of the, the people that live in Ward 7, or at least Ward 7 or Ward 8, that they have to have a freezer if you go in the most apartments. Now, I, I'm a property manager, as you know, and I've been in apartments that have freezers, but I never knew the reason. I just, you know, thought that they just wanted deep extra freezer. heat or something. Yeah, a deep freezer in an apartment. Yeah. And it was because because they have to pay money. They have to buy ta- get taxis or uh, somebody, these, these guys at the stores, to bring them back home. And so because it takes so much to go, they buy a lot of food and freeze it. Right. And I just yeah. found that very interesting. And if, if the if the electricity goes out, which it does sometimes in the district, then they lose all of that food, which is another big issue. So having well, having the, good the Department of Health classified the entirety of Ward Seven and portions of Ward Eight as health professional shortage areas. So on top of us being classified by the United States Department of Agriculture, our own health department has classified us as uh, health and food deserts on the east end. So one of the reasons that I testified was that co-ops would be the people in the neighborhood coming together and creating the food co-ops and perhaps also the food co-ops uh, are about half the square footage of a large grocery stores, but food co-ops end up the people in the community own the the business. And there's a lot of benefits for that because they say what's on the shelf. And food co-ops, as an example, they they really started this craze on organic foods. And food co-ops, 82% of the fruits and vegetables in a, in a food co-op is, is organic where in a conventional grocery store, only 12% are organic. So you, you get a huge difference because the people that own and run it want to have quality foods, and then they work in this uh, source locally. They work with um, farmers and that are local to get these things in hand. So it's, it's a great way. It's, a, it's really a wonderful model, which I did not understand when I all the way through school. I never heard about a food co-op. I only heard about them when I started managing housing co-ops. And then mm-hmm. learning a lot of, and the benefits to the employees in a regular grocery store, they make less money and have less health care than in a food co-op. In a food co-op, 
people, the, the members make about a dollar more per hour than a conventional. I'm reading from a study that was done that they make about a dollar more per hour in a food co-op than they do in a, in a local grocery store. And a lot more people in a food co-op are available for health benefits, where the regular okay. grocery store, not as many people. So it gets to be really wonderful examples. And I'd like to see if we can't get more information to you and, and the council member and the other council members about co-ops. There is another group that's called Co-op Stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And that's coming out of the economic department of the district government. They've had six meetings so far. And okay. talking about different co-ops, and I've, I'm wanting to get the lady that's in charge of that on the show, too, to see what, what they're doing and how they're doing it, and maybe start going to their meetings, too. I have not been to any of them, but I, a couple people that have gone religiously come back and tell me there's a lot of good things that potentially can happen in the district, and it's, this process is is uh, being caused by the the city government, which I'm quite excited about. Great. Good, good. Well, uh, there are a number of things legislatively happening that Councilmember Gray is putting forth to address uh, the quality of life uh, for members of the community that live on the east end of the city. Uh, As I mentioned, these other two pieces of legislation he introduced would also provide us a pathway for the district to join 17 other states in what's called an interstate medical compact, which the the shorthand version of that is the ability for people to get licensed in the district, even though they may be in New Mexico or California or Alaska or New York, and to be able to provide telemedicine. So while we might not think of ourselves in D.C. being a vibrant urban center as Uh, needing telemedicine, it is a way to close the gap of the uh, health care provider shortage uh, by providing telemedicine to our schools and to our senior centers and to the doctor's offices that may not have the specialists. So as opposed to uh, an individual going to, let's say, have an annual physical, doctor says, oh, you have uh, whatever this ailment is, I need you to see a specialist. That specialist may not be in the District of Columbia. That specialist might be in Maryland or Virginia, which is yet another burden uh, transportation-wise to someone who does not have um, a vehicle of their own to try to get over to yet another state, (laughs) Uh, even though our borders are rather porous, but you still have to look at uh, someone who does not have the benefit of a vehicle trying to get there. And if they're not feeling well, that's just a horrible burden for someone to have to travel a longer distance. So, Janice, um, we're going to have to take our next break as our final break. I really want to come back and understand this telemedicine. That sounds exciting to me, and I'd like to know more about it for me personally and for other people out there. But we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Everything Cooperative is the program. And Ms. Janice Hazel, who's the Communications Director for Mr. Vincent Gray, Ward 7 Council Member, who has some great legislation out that was developed by the people, for the people. And we were talking about telemedicine when we took a break. What is that and how would that work? 
Well, this legislation would help to bridge the gap in access for specialists and physicians that are not currently licensed in the District of Columbia. So there's two pieces of legislation that I mentioned, the Healthcare Revolving Fund Act, which helps physicians to actually start a practice or open another office on our side of town on the East End, and then the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact Approval Act, which helps to get physicians that don't currently have a license to practice in the District of Columbia to get a license and to be able to provide services via telemedicine, telehealth, televised health, if you will, bringing the specialists closer to the, the residents that need it. So there's a shortage, as I said, of access in Ward 7 and 8, and the legislation will help supplement those numbers by making it easier for physicians in other jurisdictions, whether it's Maryland, Virginia, as I said, New York, New Mexico, wherever they are, to practice in the district. Members of the compact would agree to standardize the out-of-state licensure process so that physicians aren't required to redundantly submit the same information to every state board in which they choose to practice. So which, with such a large portion of our city lacking access to primary and specialty care physicians, it's critical for our city to use every tool at our disposal to bridge these access gaps. And that's what uh, that piece of legislation helps to do. It's a tool. And it, it all feeds into the council members' push for a comprehensive health care system to extend to how we provide care, uh, even to our youngest residents. And that's yet another piece of legislation that he introduced, his Infants and Toddlers Developmental Health Services Act. So it's just a number of things that grew out of that Ward 7 Action Summit that address improving the quality of life for all Ward 7 residents and, by extension, Ward 8 or East End residents. Going back to the hospital, if you look at the numbers, we drilled down the statistics, and right now, of the Ward 7 and 8 residents that use a hospital, only 15% go to the United Medical Center, which is closest to us. As an illustration, 30% of Providence Hospital's uh, 2016 patient population came from zip codes 2019, that's Ward 5, 2020, that's Ward 7, and uh, 2032, which is Ward 7 and 8. Um, so the statistics are speaking for themselves. People are voting with their feet, and they're going to other facilities, not here on the East End. So it's really incumbent upon us to change the perception that the only way to receive quality care is to travel outside of your community. Well, it was interesting when doc, uh, Dr. Frederick from Howard, President of Howard University, who's also a he spoke, testified at the hearing of how yeah. many people from Ward 7 and 8 come to Howard. Yes. Um, and it was just, just and, he, and he was for this this legislation, which was, which was very nice to hear him speak about Howard University's medical center and how Howard could work with whomever else, whatever hospitals out there to provide care. My niece is getting her, she just got her LPN, and she's going for her RN. And it's always interesting to me, even for nurses, how from one state to another, if, if she, she grew up most of her life in, in, in uh, New Jersey. So she was thinking about going back there. And she said, but once I get licensed here, I've got to do all of this licensing again in, 
New Jersey, and it happened the same way. If somebody got licensed in Jersey, they'd have to do all of the same work to come back here. And I just thought that was a waste of effort and energy and money. So I like this idea of this compact from 17 states that seems like if you're licensed and you get the education, you should be able to practice in the U.S. Well, and that is definitely what this legislation seeks to address is to standardize the out-of-state licensure process so that physicians aren't required to, as I said earlier, redundantly submit the same information to every state board, wait whatever period of time to get licensed. If you're, as you said, um, if you attended a accredited school, you went through the accredited uh, training, then you should be able to get a license that will take you throughout the United States. Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, I am totally impressed with what you all are doing in Mr. Gray's office, uh, what he's doing with health care. And it's also it's so interesting how education is important in all of this, and that's his first goal. And, and the fifth principle of cooperation is education, training, and information, that education is critical, and it has been since the beginning of co-ops. In 1844 is when these principles were first written down, and co-ops have gone back a lot longer than that. But it's, it's education is a critical piece of it. And there's a black lady, Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimhart, who has worked at Howard. She's at John Jay in New York right now. But she wrote a book called Collective Carriage. And at the center of co-ops, it's amazing, Janice, I would like to get you a copy of this book. I, I gave uh, Dr. Frederick my only copy. I'd like to get you a copy of this book because she chronics the cooperative movement from, well, it's mainly from the civil rights. What I've come to learn is there was not cooperatives then that would not have been a civil rights movement or not a civil rights movement the way we understood it. Because in the cooperative world, people were taught about the civil engagement. Uh, Rosa Parks went to classes before she sat down on the bus, okay? And what's her rights? Uh, It was all out of the cooperative movement that this training took place. And what uh, Dr. Nimhart said was any time that that there were uh, like study bees or education bees and and people come together to learn. And this is what I like about the first goal here in this package is education. But for me, it was all the way through from, like you said, pre-K, all the way through adult education of getting people the education they need to get jobs and make informed decisions about health and everything else. So I really like it. What's your take on this education piece? Well, the after the summit uh, back in December, the council member knew that it was clear that one of his goals uh, of his legislative agenda had to be to improve education outcomes to close the achievement gap of our youth. And so through the legislation he's introduced and will be introducing, the Infant and Toddler Developmental Health Services Act which is to lay the foundation for a health care system for infants and toddlers on the East End, will also address the deficit we have in regards to the availability of high-quality child care slots. Uh, that legislation would expand the number of infant and toddler education facilities by four in Ward 7 and 8 initially. It would increase reimbursements to child care facilities. And it would create a badly needed compensation scale for teachers of infants and toddlers, uh, which is desperately needed since new educational criteria 
has been approved for early childhood educators. And another element that we don't talk about a lot is establishing lactation programs that um, breastfeeding children. Um, okay. Since there is much research supporting the intellectual value of breastfeeding, and a number of our um, mothers are, are not um, – trained in uh, lactation, therefore they're not doing it. And that uh, has proven to be harmful to children in their immune systems and their development, their intellectual development as well. So that's also a part of the legislation in increasing the high-quality infant and toddler lactation training and supports, recognizing that children can and do fall behind well before their third birthday. So um, it's just each piece of legislation he's introducing fits into another, it's like a puzzle that he's trying to solve um, through education, through economic development. He also uh, put together the Ward 7 uh, Economic Development Advisory Council, which consists before you, before of... You, before you move on, just real quickly, you would I was surprised to find out, and you made too, that in Greenbelt and on Capitol Hill, there are co-op child care uh, facilities that are owned by parents. So the parents own the facility and they learn how to run it. And it also brings the price down because they volunteer in it. So it, it, just another example of how co-ops work and in areas I never would have even thought about. So keep on, go ahead and talk about the, we uh, only have another minute. So I, I need you okay. to think about what, what message you want to give people in the next minute, minute and a half. Um, the message that I think is overriding that we need to know about is advocacy. Uh, the council member can introduce legislation, but he alone cannot uh, always get the other 12 members of the council to buy into what he's trying to accomplish for his constituents. So residents like yourself, uh, like myself, like um, anyone, should uh, come down and advocate on behalf of whatever is uh, of concern to them meaning come down, testify, uh, and don't think of that in terms of a judicial sense um, in the court system. Think of it in terms of providing information to the council members and to the mayor, for that matter, on what you want out of your tax dollars. Come and testify, be a witness, writing your testimony, our office and other council member offices, as well as organizations that embrace your view can assist you. But it's not that difficult. You know, we like to have written testimony, but oftentimes people come down and testify just based on their concerns and even their uh, non-statistical uh, information. They just come down and say, this is what I want. This is what I want you to provide, meaning the council and tax dollars. And this is when I want it. It's coming Thank and letting us know. Thank you, Janice. Thank you very much. I really appreciate what you and Mr. Gray are doing. So, and I thank you for taking out the time here. Everybody oh, yes. else. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Thursday. Please work cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, and 95.